Our Father, we have read of Your grace. We have sung of Your grace. We have prayed and petitioned for Your grace. And now we will hear and speak of Your grace. And Father, we need that grace. We need the grace of salvation, of which we will hear in a moment. And we need the grace of the Spirit of God who resides within us who are believers to take this Word and implant it in our lives and change us and transform us. And so, Father, would You be gracious to us as this Word is read and as it is unfolded to compel us to be grateful to You, satisfied with You, honoring You, to make us to come to the table of communion in a worthy manner, and, Father, to be transformed by this Word so that as we leave this place and walk into the world and walk and live this week, that this Word of grace will be transforming us. Would you do that in us? We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen. If I were to ask you to complete this sentence, how would you finish it? The most well-known verse in the Bible is John 3.16. I think I heard some other things out there, but it's like John 3.16. Everybody knows John 3.16, right? If I were to say, after John 3.16, the next most well-known verse is... Yeah, there's a mixture there, isn't there? <laughs> Psalm 23, Genesis 1.1... 1, 1. Romans 6.23, Romans 3.23, Romans 8.1. And I suspect it wouldn't be too far, too long before you got down to Ephesians 2.8-10. This is undoubtedly one of the most well-known verses in the Scriptures, at least among believers, for a good reason. These verses contain one of the most concise statements in Scripture about the word of, work of God in salvation. How? and why God saves sinners. And, and it's a fitting passage for us to remember as we, as we think about sharing the gospel and communicating the gospel to unbelievers. This is an appropriate passage to remember because it's, it is in a very real sense the gospel in miniature. This is, this is the concise essence of what the gospel is that we want unbelievers to know and to believe. It is also a fitting verse for us to remember as we come to worship because it reminds us, as we're going to see in a few minutes, of the greatness of God, the wonder of God, the grandeur of God in saving us. And it is a fitting verse or set of verses for us to remember and to meditate on as we come to communion because it communicates the significance of Christ's work on our behalf. This is a quintessential passage about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we, as we examine this passage, God's gospel, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, what we're going to see this morning is that God alone has saved us by His grace and for our transformation. We are saved by grace, by God alone. It's, it's His work. It's, it's what He accomplishes in unbelievers to produce glory to Himself and transformation for us. And, and don't miss that last part of the statement. It is for our transformation. The gospel comes to us to change us from the inside out. And as Paul, Paul unfolds this compact statement on the gospel, we're going to find three aspects of this great salvation. Three aspects of this great salvation. The first of them is given at the beginning of verse 8, and it is how God saves sinners. How is it that God saves sinners? What, is, what does God do in saving sinners, and, and how is our salvation procured? The first thing he will note is that God saves sinners entirely by grace. God saves sinners entirely by grace. Remember, and notice the first part of this passage, verse 8, begins this way, For... By grace you have been saved. And that word for could be translated because, and it's, it's a connection word, it's a conjunction that, that draws us back to the previous verse or verses. In this case, I think he's going back 
all the way to verse 4, where he has started to unfold the truth of the grace of God, and here he provides a reason for God working in us in salvation. So, verse 4, he reminds us, God is rich in mercy, and because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And then in the very sim- simple statement, he says, by grace, you have been saved. It is, it is God's grace that has saved you. And he has saved you by his grace, verse 7, so that in the ages to come, what's that? That's, that's the eternal future. So for all of the eternal future, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God wants to, for all of eternity, unfold to us, day after day, as it were, the riches of the grace that he has given to us through Jesus Christ. And, and we might note that that it will take an eternity, an infinite measure of time for us to understand the fullness of the manifestation of God's grace on finite creatures. Oh, what a, what a rich, astounding gift of grace this might, must be if it will take all of eternity to unfold to us. And because of that, Paul reiterates and says again, verse 8, because for by grace you have been saved. Notice he also says, you have been saved. Now, that's looking at the past, isn't it? The, the grace that has produced salvation is something that happened to us in the past. So, so if we are in Christ Jesus, Paul's looking back and saying, God has saved you in the past. But, but the verb that he uses here doesn't just mean in the past you have been saved, but it also means you are continuing to be saved. You have been saved and you are still being saved. And Paul is pointing to the fact that our salvation is both a past event and a present reality. God has saved us from His condemnation and wrath, and He continues to preserve us in that salvation. So, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 14, speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation, He says of Him, says of the Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So, He's given as a down payment. He's given as a promise of the inheritance that that we have received part of, but we don't have the whole thing yet. And so we are looking forward to the salvation and the fullness of what we will receive from God. And we have even now this Holy Spirit as a down payment with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. So we're still looking forward to what will come. And this Spirit is in us, securing us, keeping us, transforming us, so that, so that we know that we will get yet the future full payment. He says something similar at the end of chapter 1. He says about Jesus Christ, verse 21, who is far above all, all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. So we have Christ who is over this world now and he will likewise be over, over the world to come. Verse 22, And he, the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet, that is Christ's feet, and gave him Christ as head now over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ now is ruling and reigning over his church, securing, keeping, preserving our salvation. Similarly, the end of chapter 2, he says, verse 21, in whom, in Christ, the whole building, the whole church being fitted together is growing, present tense, into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built, present tense, together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, so God saved us. But it's not just something that happened in the past. It is something that He is working even now in the present. He's fitting us together, 221. He is building us together, verse 22 of chapter 2, into one dwelling of God in the Spirit. 
So this past salvation has present ramifications for us. You have been saved. You are being saved. And all of that happens, Paul notes, verse 8, by grace. It's God's gracious act that has saved you, will save you, and is now saving you. When we think about the word grace, it's very often commonly explained with the acronym God's Riches at Christ's Expense. G-R-A-C, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. That's true. But friend, it's so much more than that. Grace, as A.W. Pink says, is the favor of God to those who not only have no positive deserts of their own, but who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. As says another pastor, grace is that miracle of God in which He, because of His own character, extends favor to those who deserve exactly the opposite. It's not just unmerited favor. It's favor that we deserve the opposite of. When when we hear the word grace, we must hear that destitute, depraved, dead men are made alive apart from any contribution on their part. It is completely the work of God alone towards those who deserve the eternal condemnation of God. In fact, this whole passage is built on that premise starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. It must be God who works our salvation. So chapter 1 is all about the Trinitarian work of God to produce our salvation. And it must be that way because verse 1 of chapter 2 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Your sin has rendered you guilty to the state where you are completely dead and completely incapable of doing anything to contribute to your salvation. It's not just that we were dead, but but we were living that deadness, verse 2, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. We looked at the world and we were following after the world. We we were in lockstep with the world. And, and it gets worse than that, not only according to the world, but according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So we were under the influence of sin, under the domain and in the domain of Satan, apart from God entirely. Among them, verse 3, we too all also formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This was our nature. It, it's not just that that's what we did, verses 1 and 2, but verse 3, that's our nature. We came into this world by nature, opposed to God, antithetical to God, wanting to to rebel against God, wanting nothing to do with Him, and incapable of doing anything to save ourselves. That's why Paul says, our salvation is only by grace. That's why he says, verse 4, but God. It's why he says, verse 5, by grace. It's why he says, verse 7, the riches of His grace. It's why he says, verse 8, by grace you have been saved. Because it's nothing of you. It is solely God's gift. And, and that's what he notes at the end of verse 8, isn't it? It's, it is the gift of God. It's, it's nothing meritorious. It is completely a gift. It is unmerited kindness. Listen, friends, grace is not leniency towards sin. Grace is the bestowal of treasures on hardened thieves and robbers. Those who were opposed to God antithetical to Him, received the riches of God. About 20 years ago, I was um, in the garage cleaning out some, uh, some old boxes where I had some college papers and so on, some binders, and I was kind of purging that stuff, getting rid of stuff I didn't need anymore. And, and uh, our daughter Elizabeth, who was 
five or six years old at the time, saw me cleaning all that stuff and said, Daddy, Daddy, can I have those? Speaking about the binders, can I have those so I can play school? I said, sure, take, take whatever you want. So she, she took some binders and she went to her room and she set up a school, school, not, not knowing that 20 years later she really would be a school teacher. I guess she was preparing even then. And uh, a few days later, Ray Jean, uh, Ray Jean said to me, hey, come here, come here. Look at this. Have, have you seen what Elizabeth's doing with those binders you gave her? I said, no. What, what's she doing? She said, you've got to look. Got, got to see this. And she, she opened one of the binders. And there I had some papers from college class and, and at the top of one of the pages an exam that I'd taken. And the professor had written in bold red, 83 B-. minus. I'm sure I was probably pretty happy with a B- minus on that particular class. Elizabeth had taken that exam... And she had scratched out 83 and written 99A. Now, side note, totally apart from the message. If she's going to change it, I mean, what's wrong with 100? I mean, what, what did she see that she said, no, Dad, it, it was a good shot, but not quite? Now, what was Elizabeth's problem? Well, she was about a dozen years late, and she had no authority. Even, even if she had been there on the day that the, the professor wrote 83 on that exam, she can't change it. Friends, by grace, God, in the right time, has the authority to change the grade. And because, because he doesn't just wipe the slate clean without any other reference point, because he, justice might, must be served, there, there must be, in order to wipe that slate clean, a genuine righteousness that, that replaces my unrighteousness. And that, that righteousness is supplied by Jesus Christ. So when he looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ supplied and he sees over my life 100A plus, not because of me but because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And friends, that only comes by grace. It is a gift in every way. It is nothing that we have done and nothing we deserved. There is nothing we can do to accomplish that salvation that we so desperately need apart from appealing to the grace of Christ alone. How does God save sinners? Well, friend, it's only... By grace. It is not just by grace, though. God saves sinners by grace through the mechanism of faith. Notice verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, when he says through faith, he does not mean that faith in some way contributes to salvation. Notice particularly the, the prepositions that he's using. He says, by grace. So, so it is grace that affects our salvation. And that grace comes to us through faith. So it is not by faith, but, but merely it is transferred to us by the mechanism of faith. Now, you might think about it this way. We might, we might say... Um, at the conclusion of the service, we might say, hey, let's, let's go out to dinner together. Okay, let's, let's go to dinner after church. And, um, hey, listen, why don't, why don't y'all come with me and just, we'll ride in our car together. We can have fellowship along the way. Great. So let's, let's go to the restaurant. You get to the restaurant and you say, how did you get here? You would say, well, Terry took me. Well, that's not technically true. I mean, we got in my car and, and I didn't, load you on my back and strap you on my back and walk you across the street. So you actually got in my car and we rode together in my car to the restaurant. But it's not really the car that's bringing you, is it? It's, it's me that's bringing you. The car is merely the mechanism by which you're taken. And, and it's the same way with faith. Faith is merely the mechanism 
by which grace is transferred to the individual. As, as we noted, as we were making our way through Romans chapter 4 several months ago, and, and just repeating, I think I said this a half dozen times or more, by definition, faith acknowledges I can't save myself. Faith Faith inherently is saying, I can't do this. I must appeal to Christ. Christ must be the mechanism by which I am saved. Christ is the one who saves me. I can't. You must. That's faith. And faith never appeals and says, well, I can do this on my own and, and I, can, I can conjure this up and I can, I can manipulate and I can, I can do it on my own. No, faith is an acknowledgement. I can't, but God can. And we must also remember that, that it's not faith in general that saves. For faith to save, it must have a worthy object. So we can't just say, um, well, how are you saved? Well, I'm saved by faith. What do you mean saved by faith? Well, I just believe. Well, believe what? Well, I just believe. Well, what do you believe? Well, I, I, just, I just believe that, that I'll be saved. Uh, frankly, if you walk out these doors and go to one of the restaurants across the street or go to the grocery store or talk, talk to people in your neighborhood, that's pretty typically what you're going to find. I just, I just believe God. Believe God what? I just believe God's going to be good and He's going to save me. No, it's, it's not faith in general that saves. It's, it's faith that has a specific object. Turn, just turn back a page to chapter 1. Paul, speaking to the, to the Ephesians about about what he knows about them. He's just unpacked the Trinitarian work of God in salvation. Verse 15, he says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you. I've heard, not just of your faith, but your faith that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith must have the right object. Faith faith must be pressed in on and looking towards the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 12, he'll say something similar. Speaking about Christ, he says, "...in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him." It's not just that I believe, well, I guess I'm good enough and so I believe and God will take me in. No, no, no. I must believe in Him, in the person of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul also says in Romans chapter 3. He says, verse 26, For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the right time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus justification only comes, we are redeemed and we are saved only when there is faith in Jesus Christ. The theologian B.B. Warfield is helpful here when he says, it is not faith that saves, but faith in Christ. And then he adds, it is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith, the saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith, but in the object of faith. We could not more radically misconceive a, a biblical representation of faith than by transferring to faith even the smallest fraction of that saving energy which is attributed in the Scriptures solely to Christ Himself. So even the act of faith, even when the act of faith is in Jesus Christ, it's not the act itself that it saves, but it is the Christ who is the object of the faith that saves us. And friends, that's good news to us in many ways, but it's good news to us also in this fact because it is not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's not that it's not that only those who have a very strong, secure, and stable faith who are saved. No, even even a weak faith can save us. As as Spurgeon said, a trembling hand may receive a gracious gift. A trembling hand may receive a gracious gift. So so even a weak faith, if it has as its object Jesus Christ is a saving faith. That means we don't have to keep ourselves in the faith. We don't have to keep ourselves in salvation. It is the Christ 
who is the object of our faith, who saves us. So we might summarize it this way. When we say that we are saved by grace through faith, it means that we are only relying on God's grace to provide our righteousness and our merit before God so that He will do what He promised to do on our behalf. It is, it is God's work alone. How does, how does God save sinners? He does it entirely by grace. It is His gift, and that gift is received through the mechanism of faith. There's another aspect of our salvation that the Apostle Paul identifies, and that's in the middle of verse 8 through verse 9, how God does not save sinners. How God does not save sinners. And and the first thing that the Apostle Paul will note is that God does not save sinners through any merit in them. Notice the middle of verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. There's, there's nothing in the sinner that is meritorious in itself. There's nothing inside me before I came to Christ that can merit my salvation. There's, there's nothing within me that is worthy. That's, that's the whole point of the first three verses. We can't. We were dead. I don't want to belabor the point, but, but what can a dead person do? Nothing. There's no ability to raise a hand. There's no ability to respond. There's, there's no ability to do anything. It takes someone outside that person to inject life into that person to save them. We, we are dependent entirely and solely on God. There's nothing that is meritorious in the sinner. Paul will emphasize a similar point in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, speaking about the salvation of God. He says, uh, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, 2 Corinthians 2.14, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma from death to death and to another an aroma for, from life to life and who is adequate for these things. Who's adequate to carry the gospel? Who's adequate to take the gospel? Who's adequate to provide the gospel in such a way that someone can be saved through that person? It's not us. We can't save ourselves. We are inherently inadequate. Paul will make the same point. Verse 5 of chapter 3. Next paragraph, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. We, we can't. We are incapable. We, are, we have no merit. We have no ability. We are born under the condemnation of God, under the curse of sin, born worthy only of death and born incapable of good. And the problem is that everyone considers himself to have some measure of inherent goodness. I'm just 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 ask just ask anybody who's not a believer, are you a sinner? And most of them, if they're honest, will say, Well, yeah, I mean I do sin. Well define sin, okay. With that definition, yes, I I'm a sinner. I do sin. Well, are you worthy of the condemnation of God? And see how fast they start backpedaling. Well, no, you know, I mean uh, yeah, I sin, but I mean, we're not talking the big stuff here. I'm just, you know, I'm not a murderer. As if the anger that drives the murder is okay, but the murder's not. No, I'm. Everybody, everybody, by nature, assumes that he is right before God and has capacity to be right before God that He has some inherent goodness. But God considers us to be evil at every level and incapable of even a single act of righteousness. It's not just that, it's not just that we can't have a lifetime of perfect righteousness. God says, you can't even do one righteous thing without me. 
A dead man can do nothing that corresponds to life. A man enslaved and in bondage to sin can do only sin. A man that lives for his own glory cannot live for the glory of God. There is nothing meritorious in man's nature. All of man's nature is only condemnable. God has never and will never save sinners on the basis of anything that is good in them. He didn't do it with Israel and He won't do it with us. One of my favorite passages about the grace of God in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses reminds Israel of her position before God. Deuteronomy 7, 7, he says, The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were fewest of the peoples. Before you get all high and mighty, Moses is saying, don't you think that there was anything inherent in you that compelled God to choose you because there wasn't. Verse 8, because the Lord loved you and kept you, excuse me, because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. It's not you. There's nothing inherent in you. It is all about God and His covenant-keeping ability. It's all of His grace. You are not saved through any merit on your own. Paul also notes that God does not save sinners through any work by them. God does not save anyone through any merit which they possess. God does not save any sinners through any work that they attempt to accomplish. There is no work that any sinner will can do that will produce salvation. There is no accumulation of good merit that anyone can do for himself or for others that will make God to be satisfied with him. In fact, Paul could not say it any more plainly than he does in verse 9. Not as the result of works. Works won't cut it. Works are incapable. There is nothing in any work that any man can do that might produce salvation in him. What kind of works might the Apostle Paul be talking about? Well, he might be talking about about um, an attempt to accomplish the, the demands of the law. So someone might attempt the works of the law in order to be saved. And Paul notes back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. It's just evident. No one can be saved by the works of the law. Instead, he says, because the righteous man will live by faith. You cannot fulfill the demands of the law and achieve your own salvation. Jesus makes this point in Matthew 5.48. If you want to make the law your standard, okay, then do that. But you, you must be perfect even as my heavenly Father is perfect. You, you want to try and fulfill the law? Have at it absolute perfection all the time from the moment of birth until the end of life. No, no one can achieve that. It could just be that Paul speaking here about works isn't necessarily speaking directly about, about works of the law. He could just be talking about good moral um, actions um, that in some way accrue some merit before God. It's the kind of thing that he speaks of in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, speaking about Jacob and Esau. He says, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. There he's just talking not about reference to the law, things that are good in relation to the law, but just, just good things, good, good morality. So that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So the things that are good or bad might be considered to be works meritorious things that, that are right and moral and true and good and, and commonly accepted. And Paul says that's not enough to save Jacob or Esau. They were saved, verse 11, because of him who calls, verse 13, just as, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Works, whether it's works of the law or commonly accepted morality, 
can't do it. It's not enough. It will never save you. Think about, think about the most righteous thing you've ever done. Think about some particular season of life in which you were particularly righteous, God-honoring, God-exalting. Think about a season when you were walking in particular obedience. Got that in your mind? Here's what God thinks about that. Isaiah 64. For all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. More literally, a menstrual rag. And all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Implied into judgment. There's... There's no one who is righteous. There's no work that we can do that will save us. God never saves us because of us. God always saves us in spite of us and in spite of our work. There's another reality about how God does not save us. It's given in these verses. And it is that God does not save sinners for any boasting by them. God, God doesn't save any person because of what that person does so that, the end of verse 9, no one may boast. No one says, I did it, God. I, I, I got here. I manned up. I was able to, I was able to manipulate and, and obey and achieve. I did it, God. I'm, I'm here. No one brags before the Almighty. We've, we've all had um, children or, or grandchildren help us on projects, you know, mowing lawn, baking cookies, cleaning a room, changing cars oil. And, and, and the children, imagine a, imagine a five-year-old out there. Son, let's go, let's go talk about how to mow the lawn, right? And you take them out there, you show them. Does that project go really quickly because you have additional hands helping you? Or does it go just a teeny bit slower? Well, my house, it always went a teeny bit slower. Even sometimes with my 20-year-olds, it goes a little bit slower. But at the end of the day, they come into the house, right? Mom, 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 guess, guess, guess what? We did the lawn. Right. Who did the lawn? It was Dad that did the lawn. What did did the five-year-old contribute to doing the lawn? Extra time, extra effort? What do we contribute to our salvation? Sin is all we contribute. We, we don't do anything so that we don't boast. The boasting is foolishness. The boasting is ungodliness. The problem, the, the real problem with foolishness though is, is that it claims an authority and a power and a sovereignty where there is none. The problem with boasting is that it's a prideful attempt to supplant God from His kingly throne. The boastful person is the person who refuses to be humble before God or trust in God. Pride takes the one who is on the throne and dethrones Him and puts Him in a place of humility and then takes one who is in the place of humility and exalts him to a prideful throne that he can't sustain. It turns everything about salvation on its head. Paul says we're going to keep things in order as we consider our salvation. There is no boasting before God in relation to our salvation. John Stott is particularly helpful here. He says, Christians are always uncomfortable in the presence of pride for they sense its incongruity. I like this sentence. We shall never be able to strut around heaven like peacocks. Heaven will be filled with the exploits of Christ and the praises of God. There will indeed be display in heaven. Not self-display, however, but rather a display of the incomparable wealth of God's grace, mercy, and kindness through Jesus Christ. There is appropriate boasting in salvation, friend, but, but make sure the boasting is not in self, but only in God. 
And there's two, two responses to what we have said so far this morning. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, remember as we come to communion that anything you have spiritually is because of the work of Christ alone. It's, it's Christ's work. You, you have deserved nothing of what you have received from Him. And He has lavishly poured on you this salvation. It's all about Him. Oh friend, let that drive you to humble thanksgiving. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ... Understand that there is nothing commendable in you and you are hopelessly under God's judgment. Nothing you can do will ever manipulate God into being happy with you or cause Him to withhold His wrath from you. He will pour out His wrath on you unless you appeal to His grace and have faith that Christ was enough to alleviate God's judgment against you. And if you do, at that moment, He will make you alive. Notice verse 5. We were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. He joined us to Christ and the life that Christ has has been imputed to us. And then raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when you believe, God looks at you no longer through the lens of your sin, but He looks at you through the lens of Christ's righteousness. And all of that perfect righteousness that has been imputed to you, accounted to you, is now considered to be yours. And you'll be saved. Oh, friend, there's nothing you can do if you do not believe, if you are not a Christian, except to believe in Christ alone for your salvation. You must believe in Him and believe in Him alone. There's one more aspect to our salvation that Paul unfolds in these verses, and that's, that's this, verse 3, why God saves sinners. Why God saves sinners. Anybody ever had any toddlers in the house? What's a toddler's favorite question? Why? I I came across a statistic a a while back about the number of times the average three-year-old asks the question why. I can't remember the number. I think it was something like 48 or 50-something times a day that, that a toddler asks the question why. I mentioned that in a sermon one time. And immediately after the sermon, one mom came to me and said, that, that, I don't know where they did that survey, but, but that survey is all wrong. That is way too low. Why? Why, mommy? Why? 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 Why, mommy? Why? Why do that? Why do I need to? Why? 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 They're just trying to figure out the world, aren't they? How does the world operate? Why does it operate the way it does? And Paul tells us in verse 10, why God has a salvation that comes only through grace. It is because He saves us as an expression of His recreative power. He saves us to demonstrate His creation, His, excuse me, His greatness. And we're not just His creation physically, but we are His recreation spiritually. Notice what He says, for we are His workmanship. And, and notice this particularly, He says, We are His workmanship. Go back to verse 8. For by His grace, you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of works. Verse 9, so that no one may boast. You, you, no one. We. If anyone is going to come to salvation, anyone will come in this same way and for this same purpose. All of us are saved in the same way and for the same purpose. And that purpose is that we are His workmanship. That, that word workmanship is a, is, is a word that relates to craftsmanship. One theologian has translated it this way. We are His work of art, His masterpiece. It, it indicates that, that we are in our salvation the culmination of all God's creative work. If you want to see the creativity and the power and the masterpiece of God, look at someone who has been saved. Michelangelo was asked on one occasion what he was doing when he was chipping at a large rock. And he said, I'm liberating an angel from the stone. 
My friend, that is the creative power of God that liberates righteousness out of deadness. It is His recreative power. And notice notice that this again is all God's work. For we are our workmanship. Oh, wait a minute. It doesn't say that, does it? We are His workmanship. Created. Created means we don't create ourselves, but there is someone outside of us who is creating us as believers. That's God. And how does God do that? He does it in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared. Listen, this is all about the work of God, not the work of man to produce our salvation. This this salvation that we receive is a grand manifestation of the greatness of God's glory. He saves us to demonstrate His recreative power. He saves us to do good works. He saves us for us to do good works. Now, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are no meritorious works that will ever produce salvation, but that does not mean that our salvation and our faith are workless. We say that 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 faith alone saves us, but the faith that saves is never alone. Works will never save, but saving faith will always work. And, and this is the very point that Paul makes. Verse 10, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, for the purpose of good works. His purpose in saving us is so that we now can do good works. We couldn't do good works on our own when we were in Adam and now in Christ we can do good works. And this is, this is a testimony of the rest of the New Testament. Titus chapter 2, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are the household of faith. Colossians 1.10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Why does God save us? So that... We will do good good works. It is God's will that those who are new creatures in Christ will live a life like the Christ who saved him. As one Puritan said, we are not justified by, by doing good works, but being justified, we then do good. So we aren't saved by our works, but being saved we do good works. Now, as we think about good works, there's there's three possible ways to think about it. If you go outside these doors, most of the world will say it's this. Faith plus good works equals justification. Yeah, I need to believe in God. I need to believe in Jesus. But, but, but that's not enough. I, I need to do some stuff too. That, that's, that's the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, but it's not just Roman Catholicism. That is by and large what the world says. I, I, I am justified by what I do. That, that, that's the main thing that leads me to salvation. Others will say, no, good works don't have a part in our salvation. You simply believe and then you are justified and works are completely unnecessary either before or after salvation. That's, that's the issue that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 6. So that, hey, let's get lots of grace, right? And so let's sin all the more so that we get more of grace. Romans 6, 2, may it never be. No, no, we, we aren't. We aren't saved so that we can engage in sin and be libertines. No, we are saved so that we can do righteousness. That leads us to the third possibility. Faith equals, faith produces justification and good works. That the good works follow from and follow through the justification that we have received. They are the inevitable fruit of the Spirit of God who resides within us. Why does God save sinners? He saves us as an expression of a, His recreative power. He saves us to do good works. He saves us to be holy. Notice the end of verse 10. He saves us for these good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk before, so that we would walk in them. 
God designed these good works so that that would be the tenor of our life, that, that we would walk in them, that, that that's where we would live, that we would live in good works, that our, that our lives would be transformed, that we would be changed, that we'd be holy. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul, after explaining for three chapters what our salvation is like, starts making application. He says, "For one, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You've been called to live a particular kind of way. Now live that way. Walk that way. The word walk simply means to live life. Live life according to that way. He said also in chapter 1, verse 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Why did He choose us and why did He save us? So that we would be holy. He saves sinners to redeem sinners so that sinners can do the calling to which they've been called. That is, to live a holy life before Him. Friend, this is the only way to live. This is, this is the only pathway that will ever be satisfying. And friend, this is our great salvation. It's all of grace. It's all by God for our good so that we might be transformed in all of our ways into the likeness of Christ. It's, it's all by God so that we will be able to do the good things that God has called us to do. This is God's salvation. This is God's gospel. And as we come to the table of communion, this is what we remember, God's gospel, the gospel of grace. Our Father, we thank You for the reminder of this truth and this reality. For those of us who have been saved, this is a treasure and we take great joy in being reminded again of the power of the gospel and the power of Your grace to save us. We thank You for it. And for those of us who are not believers, we, we ask that you would yet produce salvation even today, that those who don't know Christ would come to an end of themselves and recognize the sufficiency of Christ, the power of Christ, the authority of Christ, the delight of Christ to save them. And Father, as we as we come now to this table, might we remember in a worthy way, might we remember in a compelling way the greatness of this grace that you have lavished on us. We pray these things in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen.